Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. What are you, are you just taking it with you there, guy? So glad that you guys are here. I got a couple of announcements that I need to go through first. We always just want to keep you updated on things that are happening at Calvary. You can always look at the website or the app. We've been, uh, you can sign up for, we call it a WAC email, what's happening at Calvary. Um, and that's a monthly email that gets sent out that is specifically all the events that are coming up. So if you want to know what's going on, those are some of the key ways. But because it is Christmas, a lot of moving pieces, what are we doing? What are we not doing, right? And so uh, Christmas is in a week. So if you haven't got your shopping done, I'm like a size 10 and a half shoe. Um, I won't tell you like closing size, but you know, toys are appreciated. I'm a kid. No. Uh, So next week is Christmas Eve. And a lot of people are asking, hey, what do we do in service-wise? So in the morning, Christmas Eve morning, we are going to have normal church, keep continuing through our Rediscover Christmas series. And so we will only have the 8 and the 945 service. So if you guys come to your normal service like you are, you're going to be fine. You're going to see a lot of new faces from the 1130 because we're canceling that service and hopefully they will come to one of these two services. So you want to show up a little early. You might have to fight somebody for your seat all in the name of Jesus. Amen, right? And so we'll have the 8 and the 945 in the morning. And then that evening, completely different style service. It's our Thanksgiving. It's our Christmas Eve candlelight communion service, very traditional service that we put on. And that's at 6 or eight. So you don't have to come to both of them. You don't get extra credit, okay? So only one of those. And we will say this. If you call Calvary home and your schedule allows it, we know there's a lot of family things going on, or you got littles, we totally get it. We would really encourage you to come to the eight o'clock service because at the six, it's going to be packed. And a lot of it is people in the community that necessarily don't call Calvary Chapel their home church. And so if you're able to, we would love to see you at eight. But if you have to come to the sixth one, like we won't glare at you much, you know, we won't look down on you, just maybe a little bit, not much, you know, glad that you're here. So again, next week, Sunday morning, 8, 9.45, Sunday evening, 6, 8 o'clock, and it's a one hour long service, and it's really great for the whole family for that. Would love to have you guys. And then the next week after that is New Year's Eve, right? So on the 31st, what we're going to do is a family service. And we are canceling the 11.30 as well, try to keep the family together. And so we'll have the 8, the 9.45, and there'll be kids in our service with us, right? So if you, we will have Cal Kids open for nursery and preschool, right? But the rest of them, your elementary style, age kids, they're going to be in service with us. And that's a good thing to see them. They, we want them to see us worship. You know, as a young kid growing up, sitting next to grandma and grandpa at Troy Baptist Church, it was good for me to see that, where maybe I didn't have the full understanding that they did, but it was a good example of faith for them. And again, parents, we are the most influential people in our kids' lives, and that is one way that we hand off our faith well, is that they see that that is important unto us. And so it's going to be a family service on New Year's Eve, right? We do have a special guest that's going to make an appearance. If you remember in the summer, we do something called Adventure Week. And I hear rumors that Adventure Aaron is going to make an appearance and have the kids come up and give a small little update of what he does in between summer to summer on his great adventures. And so uh, we really are going to try to style that family service. So you're not sitting there threatening to beat your kid with a belt if they make a sound. No, no, no. We want the family together and we're excited for it. So Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, we're excited. And this morning we are continuing in our study talking about Rediscover Christmas, where most of us understand the basic storyline of Christmas. And we have to say like the true meaning of Christmas, not just the, you know, the other version that's getting peddled uh, in our world today. But what is the true meaning of Christmas? And we all pretty much have a basic understanding of that storyline. J.C. Penney's understands that basic storyline. Menards does a pretty good job of understanding the basic storyline. But for us, how does the story of Christmas, the birth of Christ, how does that impact our everyday normal lives? 
And how can we take the, again, the basic storyline that we know, and how can we dig down just a little bit deeper to see where those anchor points of our faith can really provide uh, influence, promises, and just encourage our faith in the everyday normal of our life. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2, if you would. We're just going to be in the first 21 verses. There's quite a few uh, Christmas songs that are written out of this. And so uh, as I was reading at first service, I had to like mindfully tell myself, like, don't try to sing this. Don't sing the verse. Don't sing the verse. Nobody wants to hear that. You know what I mean? So here we go. Chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased." And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. It's kind of part of the story. It's a little bit unique. Imagine the shepherds hearing this and they roll up and telling I can see Mary and Joseph asking, why, why are you here? What's going on? Oh, do we have a story to tell you? Guess who appeared to us and told us about your baby? Verse 18, in all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So a small little geek out, side note, has nothing to do really with the Christmas story. Why did Jewish people circumcise on day eight? You know, why not day seven? That has a little bit more significance, you know, if we're talking numerology per se with God. Or why not day three? There's a little bit more there that we see through. But why day eight? There wasn't anything really uh, special about that. It was absolutely commanded in the Old Testament that when your boys were born, you waited until day eight to have them circumcised. And that's when you would give them a name. And there was kind of a whole little ceremony to it. But why day eight? Why would God command that? See, before I got into ministry, I was a pediatric nurse and had helped perform that procedure multiple times on young boys. And it was paramount for me as the nurse to make sure that every baby boy had their vitamin K shots before. Because what we know medically is that your body does not start to produce vitamin K, which is a clotting factor, until day eight. So if you would not follow God's law, even down to the very day that you are to circumcise your young boys, your baby boys, there could be a risk of them bleeding out because their body had not started producing the clotting factors. And it wasn't until modern medicine that we discovered that. It's kind of a unique thing that even in the protection of our lives, God's word rings true. 
And even when things don't make sense for hundreds of years, why wait till day eight? And it isn't until modern medicine tells us, oh yeah, because your body doesn't produce that. That if you, you know, if you were too busy and you wanted to move it up to day seven, you know, because the big game's on next week or you got a trip, you would be at risk of losing your young boys because they would bleed out and would not be able to clot and stop the blood. And so when we think about does God really care for us, even down to the minor details? Nothing with the Christmas story, nothing with the sermon this morning, but it's just fun to see God's care for us, even in circumcising your young boys. So we're talking this morning about Rediscover Christmas, and there's a small passage that I want to read. So if you go back just one page, if you remember, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, what did he tell her? Because he appears and he says, oh, hey, you favored one. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. But look at verses 32 and 31 of chapter 1 of Luke. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, it wasn't just that he rolled up and said, hey, that baby's pretty special. But this angel was giving very specific description, attributes, details to Mary. And it wasn't just Mary. You can run to the Gospel of Matthew, which is the other gospel that gives us a birth account. And that same angel appeared to Joseph and gave Joseph a couple things about this newborn child, saying that he will save his people from their sins. So what's the significance here? When we look at everything that the angel said to Mary and Joseph, that he's going to be great, he's going to be the son of the Most High, he's going to sit on the throne of David, he's going to reign over the house of Jacob, his kingdom everlasting. There's going to be no end. And he's going to save his people from their sin. These are all messianic attributes that the angel is giving to Jesus. So when people ask, did Jesus think that he was the Messiah? Did he really think that he was God? Yes. It wasn't a simple just yes or no answer that the angel would even go further and say, yeah, let me describe to you. Because there's going to be no other person on the landscape of human history that's going to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, unlike Jesus. See, this isn't like a mystery thing that nobody really knew. This would be basic understanding of the Old Testament law and scriptures. You know, any young boy being trained up in the Torah would have known this. It's kind of like if you're in uh, kids' church over here with Cal Kids and you ask them one of those basic questions and we all raise our hand, Jesus, and they're right, right? If you were going to look at these young Jewish boys and you were going to ask them, you know, hey, tell me who do you think is going to be great, son of the Most High, throne of David, house of Jacob, everlasting kingdom, save his people from their sins? Oh, that's simple. That's the Messiah. That's the, the Messiah that we are waiting upon. Any other stupid questions, teacher? What else you got for us? I thought you'd have some real brain busters for us. Like this would be very easy, common knowledge, especially for this culture because their scripture literacy was very high. This wouldn't have been like some unknown, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll find like an obscure passage and connect two things together and be like, wow, I've never read it or I've never seen it that way. If you would have asked any Jewish person, especially in this culture, hey, who is this person? If I described this to you, oh, that's the Messiah. It was very standard in understanding. And where was Mary when this angel said this to her? Nazareth. So Mary is in Nazareth with Joseph. This angel appears to her, and he outlines to her that you are going to give birth to the Messiah. The, the one that the whole Jewish faith is waiting upon is going to be conceived in your womb as Mary is sitting in Nazareth. You're probably thinking, okay, you're really focusing on that. Why? What's the issue? What's the point? The issue, the problem, is Scripture. And don't throw tomatoes at me. Don't say, hey, what do you mean the problem is Scripture? The issue here is without Luke chapter 2, there would be a massive plot hole in the story of Christmas. You know, like, that's what separates good movies and bad movies. Sometimes you watch a movie and it's like, how did we get from here to there? Like, we, we, they skipped this whole part of the story to explain this part of it. 
That's why we don't like some movies, because they don't, they don't bring in those filler details. And that would be the case here, because even in Matthew, it doesn't explain how did they get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But Luke 2 is there to fill in that plot hole for us because Luke 2 shows the fulfillment of Micah 5.2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Micah. So you're going back in the minor prophets. So it's the last 12 books of the Old Testament, the minor prophets. And we only call them minor because they're shorts. If you find Jonah, you're just going to go one more over. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And again... They would have all known that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Even Herod, when he's talking to his kind of a religious elite, when the three, three wise men show up, I think there was more than that. They only brought three gifts. But when the wise men show up, Herod even asked his, his uh, leaders, religious leaders, he's like, hey, what, what did the scriptures say? Where is the Messiah to be born? They kind of laugh him off a little bit. Herod, come on, read your Bible, guy. Micah, 5-2, Bethlehem, simple. How could you miss that? You weren't paying attention in class, were you? Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from, for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. So out of Bethlehem is one going to come from, for God, from Israel, and he's to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from Ancient of Days. Now that, that title, Ancient of Days, that's actually a divine title that we see again even in Daniel chapter 7, where we normally look to Jesus in his public ministry. He calls himself the Son of Man. That's a divine title that he takes from Daniel chapter 7. But if you keep reading that, verses 13 and 14, it talks about how he, the Son of Man, is with the Ancient of Days, talking about God the Father. And his coming forth is from old. So it wasn't like he was this new guy just showing up on the scene, but there was something outside of chronology about him. And so this person, and so he's speaking into Bethlehem. He says, but from you, very little among the clans of Judah. So even within the tribe of Judah, this is a clan, one of those, even smaller. From you shall come forth for me who is to be a ruler in Israel, which fits so perfectly to what the angel said to Mary. But again, where did the angel say this to Mary? While she was sitting in Nazareth. Mary, or at least Joseph, at the very least, absolutely would have been taught the scriptures. And being told that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, knowing, like the angel shows up and says, everything that you've been waiting on, you Jewish people, is going to be born, and that's who is conceived in you. But I'm in Nazareth. And your, the scriptures say that he is to be born in Bethlehem, yet she's sitting in, so she's sitting in this tension. Is God's word true, that he's to be born in Bethlehem? Or is this word of the Lord given through this angel to me true, that I'm going to give birth to this Messiah, but I'm sitting in Nazareth. It doesn't make sense. How do I get what is going to happen? And again, for us, we know how the story is, right? We, we've already read ahead. We've studied. But can you imagine living this out? Sitting in a spot where you just see no way that this is going to work out, and you almost have to kind of say, all right, which, which truth am I going to concede to, and which one am I going to hold on to? Is the angel right, or is the word of God right? Which one is it? And so sometimes I think we, we miss some of the depth of God's word because we already know the end of the story. We miss some of the significance. We miss some of the tension of it. And I'm one that I love to sit in the tension of God's word. And so here is Mary and Joseph sitting in Nazareth knowing that we are going to give birth to the Messiah. And so how do we move from one to the other and obviously we read chapter 2 starting, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So let's talk about that cat for a little bit. Caesar Augustus, right? Augustus is actually a, a, a title of divinity. So the Roman Empire absolutely believed Caesar Augustus here was a, a divine being. He was more than just a mere human your you know, history classes, his other name before he took on that title was Octavian. 
and he ruled from 27 BC all the way to AD 14. You know, 27 is before Christ, AD Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 14. So even the atheist is writing their checks according to our Savior. I love that. And you know, there, there is no zero. It went BC, like five, four, three, two, one, and then AD, one, two, three, four. And you know why there was no zero? There's no zero in the Roman numerals. And so for us to say, oh, Jesus was born at zero, he really wasn't. And even in, in that, or that Roman kind of calendar, it's off a little bit, not because of the birth of Jesus. It was developed off of a big event in Rome, and the guy that started it was off about four to six years. So Jesus really was born B.C. 6 to 4, 6 to 4 B.C. And so if you're ever, like, if somebody says, well, he wasn't even born on zero, then there wasn't even a zero, moron. No, you know what I mean? Like, he... <laughs> Yeah, fight fire with fire. Amen, right? Okay, now here we go. Just making sure you're still awake. Just making sure, okay. So the decree of Caesar Augustus. So this guy, Octavian, he was the first emperor of Rome. And then he was the founder of that Roman empire. He was legally adopted by his great uncle, Julius Caesar. We know that name. And so when Caesar died and everything that was his was kind of given then to Octavian, and he ordered, so Octavian, Caesar Augustus, he ordered three censuses to be taken. And the main objective of a Roman leader like that to take a census, it was all taxes. It was all about money. You know, Octavian really brought a lot of peace to the Roman Empire at this time. And you needed really good taxes. You needed really good money to keep your military sharp. And he used that tax money to build a lot of great things, waterways and, and roads. You know, like even today, you can go and walk Roman roads that they were built thousands of years. And, and they're still better than the roads we build here in Osage, which somebody from the roads department came up to me after first service and had a couple words with me. <laughs> like, hey, I'm just spitting truth, okay? I'm, I'm a preacher of righteousness. Here we go. And so they used a lot of things, and even the peace that f probably for the first time in a long time that they weren't at war. And so if you remember last week when we read Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time came, some of that absolutely was practical implications, that there was Roman peace, so people got to move around a little bit more, there were better roads and travel ways, so it was easier for the apostles to move Think of Paul and all his missionary journeys. Could you imagine not having a good road to take and how that would have hindered his advancement of missionary journeys? And then the other thing is they had a common trade language. Don't quote me on this because I'm not an aviation person, but I've heard this, that if you fly, you have to be able to communicate with one another and the only language they use is English so that everybody is speaking the same language. In case you fly into another country and you don't know the language, so the, the trade language of aviation is English. Don't quote me on it, but I think that's right. But what is true is in the Roman Empire, the Greek language was that trade language, that no matter where you were at in the world, it was the same language. Could you see how that was a great advantage for the furtherance of the gospel? And that's why the New Testament was written in Greek, so that no matter where you are at in that Roman Empire world, you would be able to read or hear, if you weren't literate, hear that language and understand the gospel. The fullness of time came. And so some of that is because Octavian was ruling well in his empire. And so he, he ordered a census because he, he got to keep taxes up. My just-turned-16-year-old daughter, pray for me, has her first job. She got her first paycheck, and then she saw taxes. She's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, don't roll up acting like we don't know what you're talking about here. Like, we've been getting bled dry with taxes for years. Then we had to explain to her, like, there's payroll tax. Then there's taxes if you buy something. There's taxes if you sell something. There's taxes if you just have money. I said, they'll, they'll take, I said, it almost makes you want to throw some tea into some water, doesn't it? <laughs> right? This ticks you off a little bit. And so he's raising taxes to continue ruling well this Roman Empire. Now, real quick, I always like to show uh, this little side note here. Sometimes in Scripture, uh, there would be critical scholars that will say, oh, the Bible is so full of contradictions. Have you ever heard that line? If somebody ever says that to you, just ask them, yeah, sure, show me one. 
then, then that possibility is going to go way down. And every once in a while, you'll get a cat that rolls up on the scene, and he'll actually give you one. And any time that there are some of these contradictions, these perceived contradictions in Scripture, I always want to call them out so that you're never caught off guard if somebody's like, you're trying to share your faith, or you're just talking about your faith, and, and somebody brings it up. There's reasonable ways to respond through these, and a lot of times it's, oh, I heard that on YouTube, and so it has to be a contradiction, and it's true, and it's like, if you just dug a little bit deeper, you know, your Facebook theology, you might find, is a little bit wrong. And so there's a contradiction that we see, perceived contradiction that we see in Scripture, in, in the verse 2 of Luke 2. It says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So let's talk through that. We know that Jesus was born under the rule of Herod the Great, who was the king in Judea. And Herod ruled up until 4 BC. Remember, Jesus was born 6 to 4 BC. And Herod ruled up to 4 BC. But when we look at this guy, Quirinius, he ruled in Syria not until AD 6. So we almost have like a 10-year gap where they do not overlap. And so how do we navigate this? Was Jesus born under Herod or was he born with this first registration of Quirinius? How do we navigate that? There's a couple different ways. One I don't like because I think it dilutes the Word of God slightly. And the other one just has so much better evidence for it. But I'll give you both. So the first one is Quirinius was governor, and it says this was the registration before, is one way that you could read that. So in verse 2 where it says this was the first registration, if you go back to the original Greek, that word first is protos, which could be like a prototype. The, a so it's, it could be read was before the reign of Quirinius. And so the, yeah, that kind of fits, you know, like, oh, that's clean, easy, and you don't have to worry about it and walk away. But I think there's just so much better evidence. So what we do know is Quirinius was governor of Syria on two separate occasions, once from 12 to 2 BC, and then later again at 6 AD. And there's a Latin inscription that was discovered in 1764 that refers to Quirinius as having served as the governor of Syria on two occasions. And we're thinking, well, why don't we know that? Why isn't that common knowledge? Again, what we have to understand, you know what the most reliable ancient manuscripts that we have of history in that time period is the Bible, by far. If you took the top 10 ancient manuscripts of any sort, the New Testament is absolutely the first by a mile and a half and then some. If you added up numbers 10 to, uh, yeah, 10 to 2, took the other 9, and you added them, they still do not even come near the amount of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. And so there is some plot holes in our ancient history because, again, there, there's not great records that we have. And the New Testament, by far, is the greatest ancient manuscript that we have of any of this. Well, obviously, the purpose of writing the New Testament wasn't to give us a, a clear picture of Roman rule with different governors and things like that. And again, when we take with what we kind of have known for years and we apply it, sometimes it, it, it can look like a contradiction, but later than evidence confirms that the Bible has been right the whole time. Just like what we talked about with circumcision, medically confirms that the Bible has been right the whole time. And so there was Quirinius ruled twice. And why we don't hear a whole lot about his first one is because there was another cat that was kind of ruling at that time, but he was a bad leader. And Caesar Augustus knew that this area, this Palestine area, has always been in turmoil. And he needs a strong leader to come in and really handle some things. And so if you look back at the history books, it would say that this person really ruled. Well, yeah, he was sitting on the throne, but who was really in power? You know, like, who's really the president? <laughs> First service loved that. There we go, right? <laughs> so it's this it's similar concept. Who's really in charge here? And that's why Quirinius isn't really attributed to that first ruler reign for so many years until later we find that inscription. We find more evidence that he was. And, and we see that there was actually two censuses that were taken. Yes, uh, Caesar Augustus, he, he ordered three, but there were always smaller ones, like even just in Judea, 
right? So it's like you're voting for, you know, federal stuff and then you're voting for state stuff. Like you're being registered for federal taxes and you got to pay state taxes. Same concept. And so there was actually two censuses taken. The first census was mentioned here in Luke 2 too. And that occurred during his first term as governor. And then there was another one during his second term. And that is actually mentioned in the book of Acts. So if you want to turn, uh, and we know that the book of Acts was written by Luke again. And what we see, so there was this guy, he was a Pharisee of the council, so the Sanhedrin. So I'm in Luke, or Acts chapter 5, starting about verse 34, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel. Do you know who Gamaliel's best protege student was? Saul of Tarsus. This is the guy that trained up Paul. This is, this is where Paul learned all of his Old Testament, all of his theology from. And look at what it says about Gamaliel. He is a teacher of the law and held in honor by all people. So this is like a high-respected dude. It's not like the bottom of the totem pole. Like this is a high-respected dude. And he stood up and he gave orders because they were worried about these apostles and what was going on. Because in this time, there was always little rebellions that were happening. That some leader would kind of rise up, get a few people to follow him. They'd try to revolt, rebel, and they'd kill them all. And it happened time and time again. And so Gamaliel, with some wisdom, stands up and he says, hey, men of Israel, verse 35, take care what you are about to do with these men for these for before these days, a Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four, 400, joined him. We only, Jesus only had about 120 disciples outside of the 12 apostles. Yeah, he fed the thousands and crowds followed him, but he had less people following him than this guy. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And look at verse 37. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people. After him, he too perished. So he's like, hey, this happens a lot. If this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And if it's of man, it'll perish on its own. And so Gamaliel rises up and he kind of speaks into that, but he gives us the clue of the second census that was given in the, about AD 6 or 7. And even the Jewish historian Josephus, he links that census to the uprising of Judas the Galilean. So there, it seems like there's a perceived contradiction, but when we dig deep into the rule and the reign of Quirinius, we see that. And we have to understand that all these guys knew each other. It, it wasn't like sometimes we read this and we think that they had no idea that each other existed. Like Herod the Great only came to power because his dad was good friends with Julius Caesar. Right? And we know Caesar Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And when Octavian, Julius Caesar, or Caesar Augustus, grew up and he had some grandkids, he hired a guy to tutor his grandkids. I mean, can you imagine the honor that would be? Well, guess who he asked to do that? Quirinius. And so when there was a part of his empire that really needed strong leadership, this was a trusted friend a trusted advocate. I mean, he, he entrusted to him his grandkids and to train them up to be strong leaders and strong members of this Roman empire. Like who else would he have sent? So they all kind of knew each other. And what, what you would know even is, so Octavian, he kind of had a girlfriend. Anybody remember from history class? Cleopatra. And Cleopatra had a side guy, right? can't make this stuff up. It's like Jerry Springer right now. And so, so there's Cleopatra, and she's got a thing with Octavian, but she also has a guy named Mark Anthony, right? And everybody in the kind of the Roman Empire was split. What side are you going to take? You know, like uh, Gilmore Girls, Team Jess or Team, I forget the other guy's name. Some of you Gilmore Girls people know what I'm talking about. So you have to pick sides of who you're going to side with. Well, Herod the Great, he sided with Mark Anthony, and if you read history books, it didn't work out too well. And Herod had to go back to Octavian and said, hey, I, like, I know I was on you know, Team Mark, but I just didn't see you guys working out. Like Cleopatra, she just wasn't right for you. You could do so much better. And he had to kind of plead with Octavian to keep his rule and his reign there as king of Judea. And so we see this, what's just so beautiful is we see history in the Bible. They don't contradict we see science in the Bible. They don't contradict. They absolutely fit beautifully together if we don't bring our preconceived ideas that they're separate topics. 
separate issues, separate sciences. But when we see just the landscape of human history, it fits beautifully. Back to our story. So the thing we've been talking about with Mary and Joseph is how will the Messiah be born in Bethlehem and yet Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth, right? Again, we, we, we already know the end of the story, but imagine walking that because we know Mary didn't, they didn't travel until very late into her pregnancy. So as she just keeps getting bigger and bigger, like all four of our kids, my wife popped, right? Like, we couldn't even hide it. Like, she popped before the pregnancy test was positive, right? It was like, honey, there's something wrong there. You better go, you better go take something. Like, something's going on. She was just all belly. She would tell you the same thing, right? I know she's not here, but she would tell you the same thing. Not talking bad, but she was just all belly. And she'd imagine Mary just getting all belly. And little baby Jesus in there kicking and moving and pushing. And, and you know, there's a day coming soon. That kid's coming out. And the angel says, this is the Messiah. And scripture says the Messiah is to be in Bethlehem. And Mary's sitting in Nazareth. Who's right, Lord? Is the angel or is your word? Can you imagine the day that the decree went out and Joseph comes rolling into the house? Mary, you'll never guess where we gotta go. Because we gotta go home. We got to follow our lineage because we're from David. So we got to go to Bethlehem. We got to make that journey all the way to Bethlehem. And so the decree of Augustus is a declaration of God's providence on earth. Let's talk about God's providence for a little bit. See, a lot of times we look at, and God can perform miracles. And I am one that, yes, miracles still happen today, but they're rare, extremely rare. And they have to supersede the natural laws that God has put in place. That's why we call them miracles. If they happen all the time and every day and every little movement of our life, they wouldn't be called miracles. That would just be called life. And so miracles are very rare. And a lot of times in our lives, we're praying for a miracle to happen when really we need to be praying for God's providence in our life. Because I firmly believe this. God works far more in his providence than he does through his miracles. But let's talk about, like, so you might be like, what's that word mean, providence? What do you mean by that, Nick? Divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and with love, he cares for and he directs all things in the universe. And through divine providence, God accomplishes his will to ensure that his purposes are fulfilled. God governs the affairs of man and works through the natural order of things. So the laws of nature that we have, they're nothing more than God's work in the universe. They're the principles that he sets in place to govern how things normally work. And because they're his principles that he set, he can absolutely override or supersede those and perform a miracle. Our whole faith is based on a miracle virgin birth to a resurrection. Absolutely, we believe in miracles. But what we see through Scripture so much more is God's providence, that he's working his will throughout the normal ap applications, the normal things of our life, he's bringing about his will. Because if we were waiting on a miracle for Mary and Joseph, he would just like beam them up Scotty and take them right over to Bethlehem and they would have plopped right there. And there it is. We read that in the book of Acts. That happened to, is it Philip? That's possible. But instead, the decree of Augustus Caesar is the declaration that God is the one that is in control. Because how does he get this poor couple? They didn't have the means. They didn't have the money. And we know that because when you gave birth to a baby and you had that whole circumcision ceremony and you're naming them, you had to go to Jerusalem and you had to offer sacrifices for your new baby that was born. And what did Mary and Joseph give as their sacrifice? What does the Levitical law say for a poor person to be able to give as a sacrifice? You've heard it all Christmas season, two turtle doves. That's where that's at in the song, is that we are reminded that Jesus was born into a very humble family, that their greatest sacrifice that they were able to give because of their, their low means was just two turtle doves. 
And so if they're looking at each other, it wasn't like they were going to go on a baby moon. You know, hey, before the little guy gets here, let's go on a little vacation. Just enjoy some us time before he just ruins it. You know what I mean? You know, and if we're, if we're around Bethlehem, maybe we'll swing in. We got some family there. We're all from the same lineage. No. Do you imagine the tension and the struggle that Mary and Joseph are sitting in? We're in Nazareth. But this baby is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. If God's word is God's word, if he really is the Messiah, what are we doing in Nazareth? And so Mary and Joseph, from the line of David, they hear this decree. They got to go back to their own town from that lineage, which is called Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. There's a whole nother sermon there. And think, Mary's nine months pregnant. Like, I couldn't have imagined my wife being nine months pregnant. And I'm, hey, do you want to go on a 90-mile walk? She's like, you want to die, clown? You know, she absolutely would have said that. I'll let you ride the donkey. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. You're so kind. It would have taken them four days to make that journey. And this couldn't have come at a more like difficult or inconvenient moment. Like we couldn't have done this at like, you know, month three when I was like barely showing. I could even kind of hide it a little bit. Like we couldn't have done this maybe even just two months ago before my feet were all swelled up and I'm waddling. Like we, you know, you waddling for four days. But think about it. Do you ever think, did Mary remind herself of Micah 5-2? Was she in her discomfort thinking, I, I don't know if we're going to make it to Bethlehem. So out of our four, four kids that were born, I know for a fact that one of them, uh, I, I went to work. I was working nights. I went to work all night, and then I had to go to school. I was in Bible college, and then I pull into the driveway. She hops in, and then we race to the hospital. I did not obey speed limits. I did not obey traffic signs, and about every 30 seconds, my wife was kindly updating me on the status <laughs> of her condition. I was like, you're about to drive yourself, woman. I'm about to hop out of this moving car right now. Just tuck and roll. But do you ever think Mary comforted herself with the words of Micah 5.2? God's word is God's word. And if he says this baby's going to be born in Bethlehem, that means we're going to make it to Bethlehem. If he really is the Messiah and everything that that angel revealed to me and everything that God reveals in his word, and we see this, that we, we had the, God's providence, we see the means that we're going to... But on that four-day journey, did she ever think, here we go, two days away, three days away, one more day, I can see Bethlehem. You know, Because we, we actually don't know exactly when she really started having some of those birth pains. But all the movies show us that he's like rolling in with her in arm, and she is literally bursting <laughs> with the Savior. But think of our lives. How many times do we find ourselves in situations thinking, God, how is this all going to work out? That we look at situations and circumstances in our life and we're sitting in the tension that we don't know what God is doing. And sometimes it even causes us to doubt that God is even in control. We're all human. We all have them. They're all going to be different depending on where we're at in our season of life and our walk. Am I always going to be single? Is this, is this person really going to say yes to marrying me? Is our lives really going to be together? How's that going to work out? How am I ever going to provide? Maybe thinking of a prodigal son or daughter. Are they ever going to come home? Are they ever going to come back to faith in Jesus? Am I ever going to be restored with my parents? And that's just relationally. Am I supposed to take this job or that job? Or maybe you lost a job. How am I ever going to make ends meet? What's Christmas going to look like? It's going to look a lot different this year. And we sit in the tension. We sit in the struggle. And our prayer, and, it, and it's kind of laced with a little bit of doubt. God, how are you going to work this out? How are you going to bring all of this together? And I, I don't understand. And that's a beautiful prayer to have. Just make sure you respond in faith to that. 
God's big enough. He can handle our doubts. He can handle when we're frustrated. He can handle when we don't see how he is working in the world. He's God. I think he understands, he knows that we're not gonna have perfect understanding. But here's the beautiful part. He's never asked us to have perfect understanding. Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1 tells us that the righteous man shall live by understanding, that the righteous man will, will live by his learning of the word of God. No, the righteous man shall live by faith. So even in the midst of sitting in the tension and not understanding, how is God gonna make a way here? Respond in faith, but I believe you anyway. That's what faith is. Simply believing Jesus enough to do what he says. And regardless where you don't see where how this is all going to work out, I'm going with Jesus anyway. I mean, think there's so many of these that we see in Scripture, like Moses, just in between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, sitting there saying, I see no way here, Lord. I'm not that great of a swimmer, and I'm not that great of a warrior. There is no way. But isn't it beautiful that one of the songs that we sing is that our God is a way maker? That when we have exhausted all of our options and we have no idea how this is gonna work out, what's he say? Just respond in faith. And wait for me to work and to move in your life. See, we're so prone to look at everything and everyone around us and it just doesn't make sense. The Christmas story, what we need to remember it's not just about who is coming out of Bethlehem. Jesus, absolutely. But think, for hundreds, if not more, years, knowing the prophecy given in Micah 5, 2, I wonder if those in Bethlehem were looking around at each other. It's like, all right, who's it going to be? You know, who, who's the hometown kid that's going to make good? You know, and every time a, a, a boy was born, they'd all go running over to the house and be like, nah, he's too ugly to be a Messiah. You know what I mean? They're like, not that one. He's goofy looking. You know, no, <laughs> You just call babies ugly? Some of them are, okay? No. <laughs> See, it's not who is just coming out of Bethlehem. It's who is coming into Bethlehem. So many times we look at the situations that we're in and we think, God, what good can you bring out of this? And that's a great prayer. But don't stop short. Ask yourself, Lord, what good are you going to bring into this situation? Because there might be a solution, there might be an answer, there might be someone that you don't see yet that God is going to bring into your life. I mean, take my life for an example. How am I going to take this young kid growing up in some crazy brokenness, how am I going to get him to be a pastor one day? I can, I can count, there's about five men in my life that God brought into my life that discipled me, that challenged me, that loved me, that cared for me, and each one in their own season that brought me to the place that I'm at. So if you're looking around and you don't find an answer, beautiful, look up. That's where your answer lies. And I was, we have a lot of decisions that are happening at Calvary, and I would covet your prayers for all of those. I was talking to Pastor Cliff about him, you know, because he's a guy that he's been in the role. He understands the pressures. And we were talking about one of these, and he said the most beautiful words. You will never be behind when you wait upon the Lord. Because you might be looking at your life, and you got this, this timeline of how you want things to work out. And our impatience is struggling, and we're looking at the Lord, and anytime now, anytime now, guy, that's where our strength rises. We're not going to get behind. We're not going to be behind schedule. We're not going to get ahead of him when we just wait upon the Lord. And so if you're in one of those situations right now, I would just encourage you. It's not just who came out of Bethlehem. It's who is brought into it that perfectly fulfills the word of God in the scriptures and perfectly fulfills the word of God in the vision from the angel to Mary. And so the Christmas story reminds us that God is in control. Even when we feel like he's not. Because he's bringing about his purposes. He's bringing about his will on the landscape of human history. 
not ours. It's not my will be done. It is thy will be done. And so we need to remember the words that Gabriel had spoke to Mary back in chapter 1. Look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. There's so many times in my life that I wasn't with God. And I looked at my life and I just thought, this is absolutely impossible. And I was right. And there's so many things in my life that I would want, but it's really not the Father's heart. I've been praying for a Ferrari since I was like three. But I'm pretty convinced right now I'm not with God in that prayer. And I think that's what Jesus was saying when he said, hey, whatever you ask in my name, yeah, I'll say yes to that. And I have to look at my life and I have to look at the situations. And it's not about, yes, he is Emmanuel, God with us, but I have to ask, am I with God on this one? Or am I walking in my own desires, my own wants? And so Christmas is to remind us that there is nothing impossible if we're with God. So in humility, humbleness, in faith, surrender yourself. In whatever situation God is just bringing to the forefront of your mind that you've been staying up and praying about and losing sleep about and, and talking to all your friends about and just worrying about, be with God in that and see if he is not faithful and see if his providence would not work in and through your life, that he would not bring about his will for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we trust you. We just thank you for a beautiful morning to gather together as your family, as your bride. And we just thank you for an opportunity to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to open up your word, to be challenged. And Lord, each and every one of us sitting in the tension of what it means to, to walk by faith. But I pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit, kindle afresh in us that gift. Fill us afresh, Lord. That whatever struggle, whatever situation, whatever circumstance that we're in, I pray that we would be with you in this, Lord. That it's not about what we can see. It's not about what we can understand. But it's simply responding to you, Jesus. Give us that kind of faith, that kind of boldness, that kind of courage. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...